Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to that very psalm that Corin read for us just a bit ago, and which we've just sung, Psalm 84. I confess I'm a bit of a homebody. I'll give you some examples. One of my favorite things about the vacation experience is going back home. I like leaving for vacation, but I think one of my favorite parts about vacation is driving in to the driveway where more memories are there in the home than whatever we had when we were just away from the home. Everything's familiar in the home. Even after uh, just a short evening away from our home, maybe out someone else's house for a bit with the family, no matter how fun it was or how nice their home, it's, it's always a good thing when we walk through that threshold of from the garage into the laundry room, which is also our dog's bedroom. And he's there waiting for us, and we greet him, and then we walk into the kitchen, and it's our smell. I don't know if it stinks, because it's ours, but it's home, right? It might smell like bad soup, but sometimes it does smell like bad soup, doesn't it? That's, we like soup. I, I love going home at the end of a busy day at work. I, the church provides me with a, a very nice, spacious study, lots of books around, good music playing, And I like being there. It's sort of a home away from home. But every day I'm there, I want to go home. I want to get home. I like going home and everything's where it should be, even if it's all out. That's where it goes. It just makes sense. It feels good. It's right. And whenever I've been out of the country, away from family... I find it a weird feeling. Sarah and I were just talking about this. When an ocean separates you from your family, it feels even further than it really is. Uh, I know it's a a flight away from D.C., and it's a flight away from the Netherlands. But D.C. feels so much closer, not just because it's closer in miles, but because if something goes wrong, I can rent a car and drive home. If there's another 9-11 and traffic, air traffic is frozen again, for several days, I know I can drive home. You can't drive home from the Netherlands. And I know that when I'm there. There's something like a bit of a claustrophobic feeling, just knowing I can't drive a car across the Atlantic. Is that weird? Maybe I'm more of a homebody than you thought. Maybe I am weird. I don't know. But even if we all have different ways in which we feel it or express it, I think we all agree that going home is a really good thing. And even if you have a home right now that you don't like going home to, or even if you, for some reason right now, don't have a home, I think we all know. We all know that the concept of a home is a good thing. There's something within us. It's spread out, not just in our culture, but in all cultures. They make homes. They live in places together. They have dwellings. Even if you don't like going home right now and even if you don't currently have a home, we all have some feeling about what home should be. But, you know, at least in my own experience, another interesting dynamic is this, that when my wife and kids aren't home, say they're out of town and I'm there, that happens at least once a year. They'll go up to Denver see family, I'll stay behind, it's not a good week for me to travel, and so I'll stay home, get work done. But I don't like our house then. It feels like a shell. You know, that's when TV gets watched more, because it just feels empty, it feels weird. You know, look around the house, and it reminds me of their absence. The home represents people, and so when they're not in it, it, it reminds me of, of their absence absence. So I love that old song. I play it loudly when no one's home. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. (laughs) You know that? It's not warm when she's away, especially in the bed. She's always gone too long anytime she goes away. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone, and this house just ain't no home. 
There's a difference between a home and a house. So it's, it's apparently not my house that I love so much. It's the things in it that I love and not the furniture, but the people. The home is really about people. That's why some people, when they are widowed, will move into another house. It's too painful for them to stay in the one they've had so many shared memories with, this one that they've loved and now don't have with them. Well, Psalm 84 has a lot of home language to it. All throughout, it talks about longing and yearning for home, but not a house home. It's talking about God's house. It's God's home that the psalmist is longing for and yearning for. And in that Old Testament context, that would have meant the temple. That would have meant a building, a a building of worship, not like churches today, but a central location where God is worshipped because God revealed himself there. He said basically that that was his house and his glory was in it. So what made that house special was God himself. Sort of like my home is just a house without my wife. It's her, it's her glory that makes it sunshine, that makes it home. So to long for God's house, like the psalmist does here, is actually to long for God himself. Psalm 84, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Notice all the house and home language we'll see in this. Dwelling place. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That's God's word, amen? Well, there are a few themes in the Psalms that are reoccurring an awful lot. We've seen some of them reoccur even in our sermon series, which hasn't covered all of the psalms so far. We haven't done 84 different psalms in our series. We've just touched here and there, skipped four, skipped five, skipped two or three. But even so, we've had multiple messages so far on three themes. One, suffering. All kinds of themes in the psalms, all kinds of psalms related to the theme of suffering. Psalm 3, we looked at Psalm 13, Psalm 42. It's especially in the first, first quarter of this book called the Psalms or the Psalter. That's one theme. The other theme is the king. So Psalm 2 is about the king, a righteous king. And of course, it's talking about David and Solomon and that whole lineage, but it points us to more than just that king and their kingdom, but a, an eternal king, the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. That's who's talked about in Psalm 72, ultimately, suffering, the king. And then another theme is what we see in Psalm 84, worship and God's presence. Psalm 84 is about God's presence and our worship in his presence. And so in some ways, Psalm 84 doesn't say anything that hasn't already been said a few times already in our study of the book of Psalms. In Psalm 16, we talked about this issue of God's presence and the goodness of God's presence, the desire to enter his presence in worship. Psalm 27, Psalm 42, and Psalm 43. And now Psalm 84, 
why bother with Psalm 84 if it really says nothing that we haven't heard already from other psalms? Well, repetition is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Remember, this was Israel's hymn book, if you like. This is what they sang. And as they sang these songs to God, God was teaching them. And as he was teaching them, they were seeing certain themes over and over again, and they were reminded that apparently there are certain themes that God wants us to rehearse together. And no doubt, the importance of worship and the glory of his presence are part of what he wants us to rehearse together over and over again. Notice verse 2. My soul longed and yearned. What strong language. Longing, yearning. In the Hebrew, it's even romantic language here. Saying that the object of his longing and yearning is what is lovely in verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places. So one commentator called this the psalm of holy lovesickness. There's like a love longing going on here, like a dear spouse away from another. So what is your psalm, sorry, what is your soul long for? To begin with those words of longing and yearning, what does your soul yearn for? What do you find lovely? What's home to you? Or where do you feel most at home? Well, this psalm gives us three different parts and three different things to think about related to home. The first is that the true home is God's presence. God's presence. The true home is God himself. St. Augustine said in the 5th century to God in prayer, he wrote it down for us, he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's a great description of the creation story, what happens in the early chapters of Genesis. The garden was a special place, a home for Adam and Eve, if you like. And it was a special place, a great home, not just because it was lush, not just because you could walk around naked freely and not get laughed at. Not that I want to do that, mind you, but it was good back then. God said it was good. It was a special place, that garden, because it was a place of God's presence. He was there. He walked with them and talked with them in the cool of the day, it says. But then because of sin, Adam and Eve were cast out. God threw them out of the house. Like rebellious teenagers that broke the rules. His only rule. You, you cannot eat the tree. So God has made us for himself. But because of sin, because we've been cast out of his presence, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So really, the rest of the story of the Bible is about God bringing that rest to our souls that's there because of sin. It's the story of God bringing the prodigal home. We saw last week the story of God leading his people in the wilderness. He's with them. They set up camp, and he's in the midst of them. He's home with them even though they're traveling. And where are they going? They're going to a land, a permanent place. And it's a land, it says, flowing with milk and honey, a land of blessing. Why is it such a great blessing? Because the crops are already rich? Sure. Because you're not starting over from scratch? Sure. Because you didn't earn it? God gave it to you? Sure. But the land is a place of God's presence. That's the greatest blessing of going into the land. That's why Moses wants to so badly get out of the desert and into the promised land. God only lets him see it from a mountaintop some ways away. But the place of the tabernacle in the midst of their travels, and then eventually the the, the permanent temple 
right there in the holy city tells us that the whole story of God is one about his presence and him dwelling with his people. It's one of him being worshipped as his presence is revealed and known and experienced. So let's remind ourselves of some of these psalms we've already talked about and looked at in previous weeks. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11. We'll just thumb through three different psalms to remind us of the language there that now we'll see again in Psalm 84. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We saw that. We saw in Psalm 27, verse 4, David's one thing, his singular focus, his mission statement, his, his one request from the genie, from God himself. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, and this is also what I'll seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, the temple, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to, to see him, to see the invisible, and to inquire in his temple. Look at verse 8. David says, you've said to God, God says to David, seek my face. And my heart says to you in return, your face, Lord, do I seek. Don't hide your face from me. See the intimacy there. You see the presence there. You see in verse 10, that even if father and mother forsake David, the Lord will take him in. You see the house language there, home language there. Psalm 42 there's another one of these psalms that talk about the beauty of worshiping God in his presence. And Psalm 42 is written while the psalmist is away from God's presence. He says in verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He doesn't know. He's away from God's presence. He wants to get back to God's temple presence there in Jerusalem. And that's part of why he's depressed. He's cast down. He's in turmoil, he says in verse 4 and verse 5 and then verse 6. My God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Midzar. He's not there in Jerusalem, but he remembers God. He ponders God, thinks on God. He prays to God from a faraway land, longing for the day when he'll lead the assembly again, going to the house of God. There are also a bunch of psalms. You know there's a whole section of these kind of psalms? They're called psalms of ascent. Psalm 121 to Psalm 134 are psalms of ascent. It meant ascending to the temple mountain. There are songs you would sing on the way when you would go to certain feasts, when you would go to make certain sacrifices, when you would go to worship. So look at Psalm 126, for example, just real quickly. 126, a few verses there show us how special this was, how wonderful it was. And also how devastating it was when the Lord removed them from the land for that 70-year judgment, putting them in Babylon. He says in 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we're like those who dream. It seemed like a dream to me. Then our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongue was shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we're glad. What has he done? He's allowed you to come into his presence with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. So now read Psalm 84, verses 1 to 2 again. And you can see what's really in mind there, how rich it is, how loaded it is. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and even faints for the courts of the Lord. Like girls used to faint for the beetles. My soul faints for church, he says. 
I long for it like one who, who hasn't had enough water, hasn't had enough to eat, and faints. I faint for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So the temple is lovely, and he longs and he yearns for it because that's where God is. It's his house, your dwelling place. They are his courts. He longs for the temple and thinks that it's lovely because that's, in his day, where worship is. That's where it was done. Yes, there are hints of Old Testament worship happening all through life. Right? There's a, there's a hint of 1 Corinthians 10.31 throughout the Old Testament that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all the glory of God. But generally, so much of it was localized, geographically localized. It was institutionalized, formalized. It was a place of worship. And that's why he longs for that place. He longs for the temple and finds it lovely because that's where joy is found. Remember that phrase, sing for joy. Longs for the temple and finds it lovely because that's home. That's a better home than wherever he currently lives. So then he gives two examples in verses 3 and 4. Look down at verse 3 and see an example he gives here. He says, even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself that she may lay her young. What's he talking about? He's talking about birds that make their nest in the rafters of the temple in Jerusalem. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Birds make nests at your house. I'm far away. Birds get to be there, Lord. I want to be like the birds. His envy for birds who just nestle and make home in the rafters of the temple. Another example, verse 4, where he's envious of the gatekeepers of the temple. He said, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They get to kind of live there. They're always singing your praise. Talks about this also in verse 10, these people. These gatekeepers, gatekeepers who were unfolded in the book of First Chronicles. People who would well, be something like the superintendents, almost like the janitors. They're the ones with the giant key rings for the temple. So he says in verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, be sons of Korah. We're doorkeepers in the house of God. And he thinks it'd be better to be a janitor at the temple than to be free someplace else in the tents of wickedness. Christianity is a religion of both God's distance and his nearness. It's always intention in the Bible. Some verses talk about God being like a mother, nursing, caring, or like a, a mother hen, cooing and, and cuddling with her chicks, keeping them warm. Other times, it's holy, holy, holy. And the angels are singing his praises so loudly that the room in Isaiah's dream, the room is shaking. And the angels can't even touch the same ground with this God. Christianity is a religion where God is both distant and near. Christianity is a religion of both head and heart. So there's thinking going on in Psalm 84 and all through the Psalms. But there's so much feeling about it as well. The Bible will never let you just run with one. Some people, well, we all do in a sense. We all lean towards one extreme or the other of head and heart. Some people like to think more about God than to sense his presence. Others like to feel that he's there more than they like to think about what he's like or read about, study about what he's like. The Bible won't have it. It's mind and heart. It's truth and experience. 
and Christianity is a religion of what we sometimes call now and not yet. And actually, Mother's Day is a good context and a good setting for how Christianity is now and not yet. Let me apply this to Mother's Day now. It might be better to apply it at the end, but I wouldn't want you to think I forgot it's Mother's Day. Let me mention Mother's Day now and, um, and keep this in mind as we study Psalm 84 further this morning. But you know, moms and homes, where they are wonderful, and they make us smile, and it's warm, and it's, it's you know, fresh baked cookies, aprons, and happy things, and traditions. Where moms and homes are wonderful, it points us to an even better home, even better care, even nearer love. But Mother's Day isn't just an easy holiday. It's not an easy day for everyone. Some here this morning may have lost a mother in the last year or two, or maybe 10, maybe it's still hard. Maybe some couples here can't have children. And Mother's Day just rings a bell that kind of feels a bit like nails on a chalkboard. Maybe some here have had difficult moms. Maybe some moms here have had frustrating kids. Maybe you're simply away from your parents or away from your kids. They're on the other side of the country and you'd give anything to be together for Mother's Day, but they couldn't come, you can't get there. You wish you weren't away, and so Mother's Day is kind of sad. But Psalm 84 points you to a better home and a better hope and a greater joy and a nearer and more perfect presence. And God is so good to give us so many reminders of eternity and so many reminders of truth and what's real and what's ultimate. So whether we're talking Mother's Day or, or Christmas or your job or parenting, when things are great, it points us to something so much greater. It's a bell that rings and an arrow that springs and should point us upward in prayer and thanks to God and looking for an expression of his goodness beyond just the here and now, beyond just the temporary, beyond just relationships and kids and mashed potatoes and gravy. When things are great, that's a reminder of what's even greater. And when things are horrible, there's great hope. There's great hope. Because this isn't it. It's now and not yet. And even when things are just so-so, because that's usually life for most of us, isn't it? It's just so-so. That's not impressive, but it makes you smile. That one's not so horrible, you cry, but if it happens five more times, you might punch somebody. You know, it's frustrating, but it's typically frustrating. And when things are typically frustrating, just so-so, nothing unusual, but life is hard... It's a reminder that he's in it, that the good is from him, and the bad points us to him. Our true home is God's presence. Our true home is God himself. That gives greater hope to those who've had glorious moms and glorious kids and currently have glorious homes. And it gives great hope to those who wonder why the Bible would dare use home as an analogy for a relationship with God because yours is so bad or has been so bad. True home is God's presence. Secondly, going home means a pilgrimage. Going home means a pilgrimage. 
This reminds me of my college days. Went to school in Virginia. Uh, home back then, parents were in Michigan. So it was a, a 660-mile drive, and every time I could do it faster than the time before. I've used illustrations before about getting tickets, haven't I? So let's just say I didn't get any. But I remember hurrying each time, getting home, getting closer, you know, sometimes skipping sleep to get home. Home is, it's not just where you get to catch up on laundry that you've waited to do all semester. (laughs) It's home, man, right? You don't have roommates at home. Or if you do, they're, they're family. Going home means a pilgrimage. My trips from... Virginia to Michigan were always interesting. It was always something. Something happened. And that's the idea of a pilgrimage. And you see pilgrimage language in Psalm 84 that is interesting. In verse 5, it says, at the end, in his heart are the highways to Zion. Remember, Zion's home. That's Jerusalem. In his heart is this longing to get there. It's this draw, this magnetic pull to the temple. In verse 6, those who are making this pilgrimage, they're passing through the valley of Baca, dry, sad. Valley of tears, they sometimes called it. But, what's it say in verse 6 about the valley of Baca as they're passing through? Uh, It becomes a place of springs. It starts raining while they're going through. Why? Remember Psalm 126? Well, because they're like those who dream. They got laughter in their mouths. God has done them good. They're on their way. And then the end of Psalm 7 of Psalm 84. I'm sorry, verse 7 of Psalm 84. Each one of them appears before God in Zion. They make it. It's a journey, but they make it. So this is talking about Jews who are living outside of Jerusalem in the time of temple, in the time of sacrifices, in the time of feasts that were prescribed by God, and they would make a trek. That's what's being referred to in Psalm 84. You even see it in Jesus' time, right? Why does Jerusalem get so packed at the time of the Passover? Well, everyone's coming from out of town to get there They've made pilgrimage. So you can think about pilgrimage in the Old Testament first in terms of getting to the land. The story of Exodus is a pilgrimage. You can think of pilgrimage in the Old Testament as getting to temple. Once there's Jerusalem, once there's a temple in Jerusalem, getting there to worship God. In the New Testament, though, the idea of pilgrimage still pops up. Now for us as Christians, God speaks of pilgrimage several different ways for us today. Let me give you a few. In some ways, the New Testament speaks of a pilgrimage being over for those who've come to Christ. It's already over. We're done. We we made the trek. Ephesians 2.19. So then you're no longer strangers in aliens, wanderers, pilgrims, but your fellow citizens. You're in the city. Fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. We're in the house now. In a sense, the pilgrimage is done for Christians. In a sense, though, we're still going to him, aren't we? But we don't go to a city There's no magic city like Nashville is for music, like New York is for fashion, maybe like London is for finances, or maybe I have those back. I don't know fashion or finances. So, But you know what I mean. We don't have a place. We go to him, little pilgrimages in prayer. We go to him alone in prayer, in meditation, in communion, in, in worship throughout the day, that's all part of the pilgrimage that we're on. Another part of the pilgrimage is that we go to him with others. 
We join with others. There's so much of a, a community aspect that you see in the Psalms of Ascent. It's not just individuals on their way, passing by. Are you going to the temple too? All right, see you there. No, they're grabbing each other, arm around each other, a chalice, let's eat some chips. I don't know, they're doing different things of celebration and singing a lot on their way. It's very celebrative. So, in the New Testament, we go to him with others as part of the pilgrimage. We go to him with our family around the kitchen table or at the bed before we go to sleep. We go to him with others in the church. That's part of the pilgrimage. This right now is part of the pilgrimage, part of going to him. We go to where he is and he meets with us in a special way. He inhabits the praises of his people, we're told. And one day we'll go to him completely. One day we'll be with him in heaven, and that will be the end of the pilgrimage. Revelation 21 talks about this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. Where he lives is with men. Again, even more so. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Pilgrimage over. They've made it home. Home is God himself. But until then, it's a pilgrimage. If you're a Christian, that's why 1 Peter 2 says that we're sojourners and exiles in the world. This place isn't our home. There is a sense in which we're just passing through. So we should abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. We're sojourners here. Would you turn to Hebrews 11 for another part of God's word that talks about pilgrimage, traveling, leaving home, and going to a better home? Hebrews 11. Referring to the Old Testament, it talks about pilgrimage much the same way the New Testament does, in a now and not yet sort of way. It reads into these Old Testament stories, something that you may not have read at first read, first glance. Let me show you what I mean by Hebrews 11 and verse 13. There are two chunks here that we'll read together. Verse 13 says, all these have come before, different account of people in history who've done great things for the Lord. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but they had seen them and they had welcomed them from a distance. And they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. So Abraham leaving Ur, or Moses leaving Egypt. If they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, what was home, they would have had opportunity to return, reason to return. But as it is, it's clear they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham leaving Ur was something like Abraham heading to heaven. <laughs> oh, I know there's some skipped steps in there, but that's what it's saying. God prepared a city for them. I don't think he just means Jerusalem. He means the heavenly Jerusalem. So, verse 24 of Hebrews 11 talks about Moses specifically and says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up in Egypt, he refused at one point, eventually, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the Israelites, the people of God, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches, getting mocked, getting persecuted for Christ, for God's glory, for God's plan, was greater riches than all the riches that were his in Egypt as part of, the, part of the royal family. For he was looking to the reward. Moses 
didn't even really get the reward in his lifetime. He saw the reward of the land from afar and then he died. But he was looking to a reward of God's people in that land and that land being so much, meaning so much more than what they may have first thought. By faith, he left Egypt. He didn't fear the wrath of the king. He endured it as seeing something that was unseen, him, our God. This same Moses prayed to the Lord in Psalm 90. Do you know one psalm is written by Moses? Moses, who has the life mission of traveling through the desert to get to the promised land. If anyone has a land mission about going home mission, it's Moses. And what does he pray in Psalm 90? He begins it by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So Hebrews is right to say Moses saw something that maybe most around him didn't see. He knew something that humanly speaking, he shouldn't have known that God himself, not the promised land, not a tent of meeting, not a tabernacle or a temple, God himself is and has always been his people's dwelling place. This is that powerful metaphor of the Christian life that John Bunyan so wonderfully illuminates in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you've read it. If you haven't, read it. Read it. There are different forms of it. You can do audio of it. You can, you can get books about it. It's neat to see the different, well, struggles of the Christian life on that trek to the celestial city. It's not easy for Christian, but it's glorious. Our kids need to know that book, Pilgrim's Progress, to see effort. Because the pilgrimage is worth the effort. Going to him in prayer and going to his word is worth the effort. It's a pilgrimage and it's a, it's a difficult journey, a dangerous journey. And there is a slew of miry things that can catch us up. There are villains to dispose of and, 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 and temptresses and liars who will lead us astray that we must resist. It's effort, but we must go to him in prayer and in his word. It's worth the effort. Go to him in corporate worship. It's worth the effort. When the alarm clock goes off late and you wonder, go or not go, it's worth the effort. When companies come in at noon... Here, this, it's worth the effort. When you're tired because the week has been long, it's worth the effort. Persevering in this pilgrimage is worth the effort because of what each little pilgrimage is, like prayer, the trek to God, and what the final pilgrimage will be, Heaven itself, it's God. The gospel is God giving us himself. Forgiveness is the means by which we get to go to him. The goal isn't just forgiveness. The goal is communion. The goal is to behold him. Like David said in Psalm 24, 27, to gaze upon his beauty. Like it says here in Psalm 84, to behold him. Like it says in Psalm 34, to taste and see that he's good. It's a pilgrimage. One day we'll see him face to face and we'll be like him. And until then, we still behold him. We behold the glory of the Lord, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 3, in his word, and we're transformed by it. We're transformed by from one degree of glory to another, as we look at him through the lens of his word, as we draw near to him through the means of prayer, as we call out to him and laud him in our praise, our singing together as a church or as a family or alone, he moves us from one degree of glory to another. 
So to be clear, church buildings are not new temples. It's where the temple comes to meet. It's very, just very practical. But something special happens when we come together. It should be that there's a seedling of laughter in our mouths with the thought of drawing near to God with his people in corporate worship. It'd be like a dream, Psalm 126 says. And if they thought that for a big old white building, yes, we're God in a sense dwelt. How much more when he dwells in people, when each one of us is a a washed body building for his glory and presence. Each one of us is an example of his mercy. If we're in Christ, and so meeting with the church for worship was important in the old covenant And it is more so in a sense now. Meeting with the church for worship is important. So we said a while back, come eagerly, expectantly, and just a reminder, early too. The church meets together for nothing less than God. That's that's why things like early can be important. Because it's about God. This meeting isn't about me. It's not a, about you. He's the reason for our meeting together. And he's also the focus. And so we have to saturate our meetings with glory. With opportunities to gaze and behold and taste and see. And you might ask, leading to our last point here. What if I don't sense his presence? What if I come together with a church for worship and it doesn't feel important? What if I'm tempted to stay home or to do a new Sunday morning hobby because I'm not hungry to seek him? Well, the last section of Psalm 84 tells us what to do. It tells us that going home requires prayer. The true home is his presence. His presence requires a pilgrimage. Going home requires prayer. That theme of God providing strength for the pilgrimage in those verses 5, 6, and 7 there meant that God gave strength for a journey, strength to make it there. They'll all end up in Zion. Just like us. Of those who come to me, I'll turn none away. And those who are mine... I will lose none. None that the Father has given me will I lose. They can't be snatched out of my Father's hand. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So what he promised, that he'll be our God and we his people? We already saw the end, didn't we? Revelation 21, it's coming. He will be their God. He will dwell in their midst and they in his. God calls us to pray while he works in us, though. The psalmist here trusts that God will hear. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And then notice verse 10 begins with a four. Four a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So pray that God will keep you from sin, from the tents of wickedness. A threshold doorkeeper, key jingling, temple servant. And a day on that job is better than a thousand elsewhere. How much more so the meeting of the church? How much more so our chances to pray and to go to God's word in the new covenant? Pray that God will keep you. Pray that he will keep you because he's better than sin. His presence is more joyful than temporary pleasures of Egypt. Pray that God will show you, verse 11 tells us, that he'll show you himself. 
He's a sun. He's a shield. Oh, great imagery. And he gives grace and glory. Glory without grace is trouble. For him to reveal himself, and we don't have the grace, the mercy, the relationship to take it, we would blow up. The Lord gives grace, and he's shown us grace in Jesus. And in that grace in Jesus, he's also shown us his glory. His glory is his loving kindness, he told Moses. So God is better than you. He's better than your vain glory. He's better than the mirror. He's better than your resume. He's better than whatever it is you sometimes go to or think about to pat yourself on the back, to remind yourself that you've done pretty good for yourself. Maybe it's a retirement dollar amount. Maybe, Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's looks. God is better than you. He's better than self. And he shows us this in his grace for Jesus died in our place. Died. Again, not just for forgiveness. But as 1 Peter 3.18 says, died to bring us to God. So know that he'll provide. Verse 11 says at the end, he doesn't withhold anything good. So it means whatever you have, you can trust him. He's not holding back. Verse 12 tells us to trust him because God is better than striving. God is better than sin. God is better than self. And God is better than your striving, your worrying. He works even while we sleep. He's God. And he's our God.